Well, take your Bibles this morning. We're in the series in the book of James called Real Faith. And today we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And uh, my goodness, the author James, filled under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, probably says more in a few verses than most of us could really say in a long, long letter. And so I pray that today that the Lord would speak to us. So if you have your Bibles open or if you've turned your Bibles on, turn to James chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 and follow along with me as I read this passage. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore... Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, are you not a doer of the law? Sorry, you are not a doer of law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Oh, Father in heaven, this passage is so weighty, and it is so full. I just pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear so that we might be transformed into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if you are old enough to retain any sort of memory you can think of a time in which you have encountered conflict in your life. Children experience conflict at a very young age when they begin to experience personal desires and wants. And we, if you've had children, you know that happens at a very young age now. And I, and I might be wrong, but I would actually even argue that, that part of what we refer to as the terrible twos is kids wanting to satisfy their personal desires their way. 
And at that age already, you can take two of the sweetest, littlest kids and put them together. And within moments, you can have kids slapping one another and crying. Why? Because there's conflict between one another because they want things their own way. Vodibachum refers to them as vipers and diapers. Sadly, this doesn't end at that age. In fact, even if you're not experiencing conflict in your life at this moment, you're probably connected with someone who is experiencing some form of conflict. And it never seems to be far from us. And even as followers of Christ, as those who love God and are to be filled with his Holy Spirit, you and I never seem to be far from conflict either. We find conflict among kids. We find it among adults. We find it within families. We find it in circles of friends. We find it in workplaces. We find it in sporting events. And we even find it in churches. Nothing is exempt But this isn't unique just to our day and age. Scripture tells us that there is nothing new under the sun, and this is the result of the fall. Cain and Abel are a prime example of how long people have struggled with conflict between one another. And sometimes you don't even need to. Sometimes it can be instigated simply by one. Now, in today's passage, James is going to reveal where conflicts come from And the cure to overcoming conflict. So the first point I want you to see today is this. That conflict comes from within. Conflict comes from within. This is very important for us to understand. Look at chapter 4 verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? Now we might think that this is, he's very oversimplistic here. But let it be what it is. Because I believe the Lord will reveal our hearts or our, what is within our own hearts. And so what James does here, first of all, he answers his question with a question. The the inference here is that he expects the recipients of this letter to already understand, as Christians, what causes quarrels and fights among even believers. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your passions are at war within you? I want to take a moment and just kind of unpack that word passions for a moment here because this is very important for us to understand. In fact, this word passion is where we get the word hedonism. Uh, Now, John MacArthur, or sorry, John Piper has done a wonderful thing turning this around and developing something he refers to as Christian hedonism, and that's for another time, and I love that concept. But when we look at the New Testament and we see the word passions and how hedonism is used, it's never in a very positive light or never in a positive light at all. In fact, MacArthur properly um, gives an explanation for the word hedonism in this way, that hedonism connotes, listen, the gratification of sensual, natural, 
fleshly desires. And then he goes on, he says, hedonism is the uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. That, brothers and sisters, is what hedonism is, that word passions and the way it's used here. It's pursuing anything that you believe is going to make you feel fulfilled or give you some sort of satisfaction. It doesn't matter what it is. You can find it in almost any realm. Now, if you remember last week, James alluded actually to two different kinds of wisdom. The one wisdom that he referred to as from above is wisdom from God. And the other wisdom he referred to as earthly wisdom or unspiritual wisdom. And it's got nothing to do with God. It's void of God. And he says that wisdom does not come from above. But he says it's actually motivated by bitter jealousy and, here it is again, selfish ambition. This is connected to the word that we see in this passage today about the passions, about that hedonism. Wanting our desires met our way. Anything that we think is going to give us satisfaction or make us feel good. And so when James says that quarrels and fights are the result of the passions that are warring within us, we understand that these passions that he's talking about are not rooted in the wisdom of God, but that earthly, unspiritual wisdom where we seek to fulfill all our ungodly passions, and that leads us to every evil or vile practice. James then goes on and he gives us some examples. In verses 2 and 3, he begins and he says, he gives this example. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. I mean, those are sharp, piercing words, aren't they? Now, the reality is I don't know if James is actually speaking about an actual murder where a believer may have killed someone else or if he's simply being hyperbolic. But let us acknowledge this at least. We need to admit, sadly, that it is not uncommon for godly people to do ungodly things, even to the degree of murder. We remember King David, who was referred to in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. David not only committed adultery, but then to cover up his sin, he set up her husband Uriah to be killed. Now, this morning you might think, yeah, but I would never do anything like that. I would never commit murder. But we need to remember what the word of God tells us in 1 John chapter 3, 15, where it tells us that everyone who hates his brother, speaking about in the Christian context, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Again, those piercing words from the word of God. So the reason murder is connected, or sorry, hatred is connected with murder is because that when you really begin to blow things away and you remove all the dirt, you begin to see that hatred is the seed of murder. We saw that in the lives of Cain and Abel. 
We could expand on that further, but for the sake of time, let's keep going here. In verse 2, he continues on, and he says, You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So the solution is simple then. Well, just ask, right? But then he flips this around and he says, You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's true. Even children of God can operate out of a worldly wisdom, get caught up and swept away by that, and motivated by selfish ambitions and desires that have nothing to do with the will or the glory of God. And here's the thing, when we function this way, we, we act as though we are not the children of God. We act as though We are not the bride of Christ. Now, the Bible uses that terminology, paints that picture for us that the church or believers as a whole make up the bride of Christ. And when we function this way, when we give in to fights and quarrels and The result is that God does not end up giving us what we want because we're pursuing them for the wrong purposes because we're actually asking God to fulfill our sinful, ungodly desires. I met with a a gentleman that I'd worked with years earlier. This is probably about about 10 years ago. And I remember him coming into my office here wanting to meet. He was broken. He was crushed. And, and I asked him what I could do for him. And he said, I want you to get my girlfriend to move back in with me. He said, I'll do whatever you ask. Just get my girlfriend to move back in with me. And I told him, I said, we can't do that. Because that's sin. And I said, you have a bigger problem than your girlfriend not moving in with you. And that's your sin problem. And we need to deal with that first. We need to bring you in a right relationship with God. And then we can bring you in a right relationship with your girlfriend. And he said, well, I'll get back to you on that. And he left. We ask God to fulfill ungodly desires when we act that way. And you see, the passions that we ask God to fulfill don't reflect the splendor and the glory of God, but instead reflect our pride our selfish ambitions, and our own passions to the complete and utter disregard of God. And this is devastating because our purpose as those who are saved by God, who love God, is to shine forth into a world that is in darkness the beauty and the splendor and the glory and the goodness of God. Look at what he says to the people of God when they act according to worldly wisdom, pursuing selfish ambitions in verse 4. He actually says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with with the world, excuse me, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see what he's getting at here when he refers to the people of God as an adulterous people? 
He says it's like committing adultery. You see, the people of God, as I already stated, are often referred to in the Bible as the bride of Christ. And when we act contrary to who God says who we are and who he has made us to be in and through Christ, it's actually like we're cheating on our spouse. Except in this case, we're cheating on Jesus, who not only is the groom of the church, he's the very life of the church. He's the only reason we exist and are alive because he gave himself for us. And so when we act this way, it's like we're cheating on Christ. And it's, we act as though we're not married to him, that we're not united to him as we run off in pursuits that are contrary to him as though we're pursuing another lover. Now, if you've ever experienced the heartbreak of an unfaithful spouse or you've witnessed someone who's going through it, I don't need to explain to you how devastating it is. I remember about 15 years ago, I was sitting with a friend who found out that his wife had been cheating on him. And he said to me, he said, Jake, it would have hurt less if she would have died. When we as followers of Christ live according to worldly wisdom and pursue selfish ambition, ungodly passions, we are committing spiritual adultery against God. Because what we're saying is this. When we're looking for fulfillment in the things of this life, if we think these are the things of this life, are the things that will complete us and give us a good life, listen, what we're saying is, Lord, you are not the best thing to happen to me. Lord, you are not what I need the most. Lord, you're not what I want most. You are not my first love. And just like in marriage, where we sever all other relationships that threaten the sanctity of our own marriage, so is our relationship with God. We're supposed to sever and cut ties with the love of this world. Because friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. We, we, we can't have both because these two, God and the world, are contrary to one another. And so I'd like to just take a moment here and just pause and just let, let us really embrace the reality that if, if you're a Christian this morning, but you've embraced friendship with the world by pursuing the passions of the world that make you guilty of spiritual adultery against God, would you just stop here and just confess your sins before God? Recognize the guilt of your sin because you see, you can't have both. 
You can either have God or you can have the world. But you can't have both because they're contrary to one another. And so then, James asks another question in verse 5. He says this, Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, depending on what translation you have, it'll interpret this significantly different. And there has been and there is a lot of debate by biblical scholars as to how to interpret this verse. And even the ESV that I use has kind of given its own bias or slant, if you will. And so this morning, I don't presume that I will give you the proper interpretation of this verse. However, I will give to you what I believe is being said in this verse. And I think if you were to summarize it and put it in everyday vernacular, I think this is what he's getting at. Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain that God is jealous for his people? You see, we read in Exodus 20, verse 5, that God says that he is a jealous God. God is jealous for his people, but it's not a sinful jealousy like you and I experience in our lives. It's totally different because God is sinless, and he is sinless in his jealousy. It's a holy, righteous jealousy. Therefore, it becomes a beautiful jealousy, in fact, the Christ-centered exposition commentary on this verse says this. God is infinitely jealous for his people. I, I hope you soak up these words this morning. God is infinitely jealous for his people. And he will oppose with divine force anything or anybody that threatens their good. God is jealous for the affections of your heart as a follower of Christ. This is not an insecure jealousy that is afraid that you're going to find someone or something better. For there is nothing, anyone or there isn't. I think it must have misspelled it there. Anyone or anything better. This is a secure jealousy that seeks what is best for you by guarding your heart from adulterous pursuits. And he tells us to run from the things of this world and cling to him in order to find all that we need. And brothers and sisters, you can pursue the things of this world and you can try to satisfy yourselves with the things of this world. But can I just tell you this morning, they're only going to satisfy momentarily. It's going to wear off and then you're going to be left empty again. And you're going to be looking for your next satisfaction. What can fill me? What's going to satisfy me? And you're going to keep looking and everything you pursue is going to make you feel or leave you feeling empty to the point where you feel you have no hope. And what's the purpose of living? But the reality is true fulfillment and satisfaction is only found in Christ Jesus, in God. 
And that's why God's jealousy is a glorious, beautiful jealousy. It's a holy jealousy in which he seeks only your good. Again, so let me pause here for a moment and let me ask, are you experiencing conflict in your life? Have you been living by worldly wisdom, pursuing selfish ambitions and passions, looking for, as the old country song says, looking for love in all the wrong places? Looking for it in things that are contrary to the Lord. If you're experiencing conflict in your life, it's because you're pursuing your needs in ungodly ways. Are you guilty of spiritual adultery against the Lord? Maybe you are. And this morning, you're sitting here and you know that there's conflict in your life. And you can just never seem to get it right or get it together. So you're wondering, what's the cure? Yes, this is true of me, Jake, but, but how do I get out of this? I don't know how to get out of this. How do we turn this around? James gives us the answer. And so the next point is how to overcome conflict. And, and even before we look at this passage, let me just say this. If you want to know how to overcome the conflict, stop looking to seek all your fulfillment and your satisfaction and your happiness in the things of this world. Turn to Christ and find it in him. But let me get into the passage here, how to overcome conflict. James 4, verse 6, it says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, here's the thing. In spite of our adultery against God, and as great or as devastating as our adultery against God is, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. As great as your adultery is, he gives more grace. Grace that overwhelms your adultery, overwhelms the wrongs that you've done. Isn't that great news? What glorious news. Let that sink in. No one is too far from the reach of God. Even if you claim to be a Christian, you're like, my life is such a mess. I've messed everything up. There is no hope for me. Yes, there is. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's good news. Let that sink in. You see, the power to overcome the passions that you've been pursuing, the desire to have all your needs met by anything else other than God, God will give you the grace to overcome that and to find it in him. The solution to overcome the conflict in your life, to turn from your passions, is the grace, the beautiful, glorious, marvelous, wonderful grace of God. 
And that grace has been extended to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why if you attend here at Redemption Bible Chapel, we will never stop preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because he is the grace of God personified. And so we want to keep dumping Christ on you. Dumping grace on you because it's Christ. He's the reason we're here. He's the reason we can have hope. He's the reason we can turn things around. And he's the reason we can even have joy in a broken, fallen, sinful world. Even in my messed up life. Now here's the thing about God's grace. We don't just need it at salvation. We need God's grace daily. Because we're weak and we fall into sin and we're drawn away by the passions within us and the lusts of this world so easily. But God's grace through the person of Jesus Christ is the power to overcome the fleshly passions and also to keep us. His grace is the power by which he keeps us. Now, James goes on and he says that God opposes the proud, but I actually believe what James is doing here, although he's quoting a reference from another point in the Bible, what he's actually doing, I think his focus is on grace here and not the proud, but let it be known that God will not, God will not extend grace to the proud, but he does extend grace to the humble. And if you've experienced the grace of God in salvation... He will gladly continue to pour out his grace upon you daily. Because it's the only way he'll keep you is by continually pouring his grace upon you. And by pouring out his grace upon you, you can overcome the conflict. That's the result of your passions, that war within you. And then... Once we understand his grace, once his grace has become real to us, it's not only God's unmerited favor by which he saves us, it then becomes the power of God to help us overcome the passions and the conflict that we experience from within. And so here we go. I'm going to give you eight steps that we're to implement by the grace of God that will keep us from fulfilling the passions of our flesh or the passions within us. Look at verse 7. Here's the first step. Submit to God. Some of these steps are going to be just right out of the passage here. Submit to God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God, James 7, 4, 7 says. You see, whereas before you were submitting to the passions that were within you, he has now given us the knowledge and the wisdom and the grace to turn from these things and to submit ourselves to God. That's the first thing. Stop giving in to the passions of your flesh. Stop submitting to that and submit yourself to God. Now, you might think, but wait a minute, you don't understand you don't understand how strong these passions are. This is true. I, I, I don't. All I can speak to is the passions in my own life. But if you've been united to Christ by faith, 
His grace is sufficient for you to overcome those passions. Step two, resist the devil. He expands on that and he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I've seen this verse, I believe, interpreted incorrectly where people think they can go face to face with the devil and take him on themselves. But brothers and sisters, I say, don't don't do that. Because I don't think that's what this is saying. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, we read about the devil tempting Jesus and we see Peter sifted like wheat. And perhaps you're being sifted. Perhaps you're experiencing these things and, and he's tempting you. Now, here's the thing. The devil's been at this a long time, and he knows the buttons to push to get you. But regardless of the temptation that he tempts you with or the temptation that comes from within you, by the grace of God, we are now called to resist. Because here's the thing. If you've been united with Christ... Sin is no longer your master, and the devil has no power over you. He wants you to think he does. Your temptations want you to feel like they do, but they don't. They don't. And so often we believe the lie that when temptation comes our way and we feel temptation within, that it won't go away unless we give in. But it's not true. God's grace is sufficient to help you resist in spite of how strong those temptations may feel. It's just often we keep our temptations to ourselves and we don't do what the Bible commands us to do. And that is to resist. Years ago I said in a sermon, don't ever have a staring competition with sin. Because you will lose every time. The more you look sin in the face, you know who's going to blink first? You will lose. You will lose. So turn from sin and look to God. James tells us to resist. He says when you do that, the devil will flee from you. But the devil's fleeing is not based on the power within you, your own strength to resist him. It's based on the fact that you've submitted yourself to God and greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And remember the words of the Lord to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness. Acknowledge that you're weak and then turn to the Lord for strength, not yourself. Step three, I need to pick the pace up a little bit. Pursue God. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, even though you might feel like, no, I can't do this. I've just messed up so much. I can't do this. I'm, I'm unworthy because of the way I've lived my life and the passions that I've pursued. Well, listen, this is the beauty of grace. You don't, earn, you don't deserve it. You could never earn it. So draw on his grace and rekindle that intimacy with the Lord. Seek him. So it says here, draw near to him. So pursue God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
So here's what you can do. Seek him in his word as you read it. Seek him as you submit yourself under biblical, biblically sound preaching. Call on him through prayer. Worship and adore him through, the, through worship and song. Connect with his people. Gather the people of God around you. And when you begin to do these things, you will begin to find out that God is drawing near to you as well. Step four, put off sin. Look at verse eight again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, he says. He, he's very bold in how he says these things. In other words, stop giving in to sin. Sin is no longer your master. You don't have to give in. It's no longer who you are. By grace, you are now able to put it off. Because you see, when you were united to Christ in Romans 6 11, we're told to reckon ourselves therefore dead indeed unto sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. What a glorious thing. See, your temptations make you feel like they are still in charge, but they're not. It's a lie. So put it off. Step five, transform your thinking. In verse 80, he continues, he says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop thinking that you can serve God and your passions because you can't. You can't love God and the world because these two are opposed to one another. Step six, recognize the seriousness of sin. Look at verse 9. He says this. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying walk around as though you're a miserable wretch. But he's saying when you recognize your sinful state, when you recognize the passions you've been pursuing, how you've been living, grieve over it. Recognize sin for what it is. It's serious. Sin is no light matter. Christ died because of our sins. That should reveal to us how weighty a matter sin really is. And so we need to stop treating sin like it's trivial or a light matter. And so ask God to show you the seriousness of your own sins and to bring your heart in line with his. Recognize that sin is treason against God. Step seven, we're, we're coming to the end here. Humble yourself. In verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Oh, see, we all want to be lifted up, but listen, the way to be exalted is by humbling yourself. Humble yourself and let God build you up and exalt you. Now, to humble yourself is to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to. It's to recognize that you're weak. It's to recognize that you're, you're sinful and that you have a tendency to give in to it. And confess your, confess your need for him. Because without him, it's hopeless. You don't have the power to overcome. So humble yourself before God and let him exalt you. Step eight. I know I've been plowing through these quickly, but step eight. Don't slander. Listen to what James says in verse 11. 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. Now again, James just has this way where, where Paul has this, when Paul writes in his letters, Paul just has these run-on sentences that never stop. He just goes and he goes and he goes. James does the opposite. He says this much in this little space. And so when we look at this, let me sum this up for us. Here's what we know. Slander is a violation of the law of love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And slander not only shows a disregard for the law of love, which is the law of God, but when we do this, it gives the impression, listen, that the law of love is insufficient. It's not enough. Secondly, when we slander someone, we're actually exalting ourselves to the status of judge. And not just the one who judges someone, but as one who makes the law and determines the eternal outcome of another soul. And this is dangerous to do because. Look at what James says next in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, there's a whole lot more that can be said about judging. That's a topic all on its own. But let, me, let it suffice this morning to say this. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and that is the Lord himself. And to slander someone else is to exalt yourself, which is contrary to the previous step, which was to humble yourself and let God exalt you. So James has said so much in this short passage today, but we must take heed and listen. Now, as I wrap this up and I close this, perhaps you're experiencing conflict in your life. And James makes it clear that it's because of, the, because of our hedonistic passions within us, meaning the pursuit to fulfill every passion, satisfaction, desire, and whim that promises some kind of satisfaction and enjoyment. So if you're experiencing this conflict and you see it in your life, here's what I want you to do now. This morning, I want you to look away from yourself and I want you to look to the Lord. Look to Him and see His grace. See His beautiful, glorious grace. You see, God knows your weaknesses, He knows your struggles, He knows your inward passions, He knows the temptations that you may have never even shared with others. He knows the conflict that's in your life because all things are bare and open before him. There's nothing hidden from his sight. And yet, and yet, in spite of all of this, he pours out his beautiful grace on you. We don't deserve this grace. 
We can't earn this grace. And that's why he sent his son to die in our place so that through faith we would be united to his son in order that we might have access to this glorious, glorious grace. And he did this because he is holy, because he's righteous, because he's just. And it's all brought together because he is love. The only access to this grace is by faith in Jesus Christ. And when we gain access to this grace through faith, his grace becomes the power by which we overcome these passions and the conflict in our lives. So I want to invite you today, look to the Lord. Behold his grace. Receive his grace as you submit to him and embrace his grace. What a glorious, wonderful God. And as I close in prayer now, I just want to invite anyone after the service, if you need prayer, our elders will be available and we would love to pray with you. Let's close in prayer. Father, this morning, your word is so rich, it's so deep, it penetrates and it hurts because it reveals who we are. It reveals all the ugliness of our sin and our weakness, our passions and our temptations. But Lord, we don't continue to stare at those things. We turn to the Lord. We look to Jesus and we see your love poured out and we see your grace poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. So this morning, Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, who recognizes the conflict in their own life, Lord, I pray that this morning they would look to you and behold all your splendor and your grace, Lord. Oh, Father, would you just do a work within us this morning? Give us eyes to see by the power of your Holy Spirit of our need for your grace. Father, how we just call upon you this morning. Save us from ourselves, Lord. Save us from our sin and our passions. And I pray, Lord, that we would immerse ourselves in your glorious, beautiful grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray.